Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right, this week we have a really, really fun one for you. It is Brian Nash, guitarist for Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Can you believe that? So, of course, everybody knows Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Relax, that you're listening to here. Two Tribes, The Power of Love, which is a gigantic hit everywhere else in the world except for in the States. Three number ones off the debut album, produced by Trevor Horn, uh, one of my favorite producers of all time. And then a sort of half-hearted follow-up called Liverpool a few a couple years later that didn't really go anywhere, and that was it. And uh, Holly Johnson went on to do his own thing, and uh, so did everyone else in the band. So Brian wrote a book about this called Nasher Says Relax. I bought it on Kindle for, I believe, $3.19. So it is not cost prohibitive to go check out Brian's book, and it's a blast. It is one of the best descriptions of post-band life I have ever read. All the details you would want to know. And I will tell you, he is not a fan of Trevor Horn. And we learn in here why that is. Um, you know, I like to think of him as a genius, which I believe he is. But what I fail to, to have considered before is the business side of things and what it must have been like uh, being, you know, basically a pet project for Trevor on his record label and the costs involved in doing that. And unfortunately, most of the people in Frankie Goes to Hollywood never saw any of that money. So it's been a rough road. Now, Brian, for the last several years, has been a solo artist. Uh, look up Nasher. That's his nickname. Uh, he's put out four albums. It's very mellow, sort of folky rock, very... Um, almost orchestral. It's very laid back. Nothing like Frankie Goes to Hollywood. But he's out there still doing it. And this guy is a straight shooting, no-nonsense scouse. Uh, he does a football podcast, if you like that kind of thing, that he talks about in here as well. Uh, he just does not pull any punches, and I love it. So you're going to learn a lot about Trevor Horn, the band, the post-band life, and what his solo career has been like and the challenges that he's faced, frankly, um, from being in Frankie for all that time. So anyway, I hope you enjoy this. This was a listener request. That listener has chosen to remain anonymous. Um, so I know who that person is. Thank you for your recommendation. It was spot on. Brian called me from his home in London. For starters, and I don't normally start this way because this seems like the most basic, easiest thing to Google if someone wanted to, but I want to start with the name of the band because I'm going to get to a larger point that I want to make after the fact. Confirm for us how okay. what Frankie Goes to Hollywood means. Where did you get that name? Um, when Holly was, uh, he was, he was in a band rehearsing with a couple of other people, and in the, uh, the rehearsal room was a page from a book uh, uh, the book was called Rock Dreams by Guy Pilar, um, who's famous for doing the, the diamond dog sleeve. Mm. And in this book, there is a there was a mock-up of uh, a Los Angeles newspaper talking about Frank Sinatra going from New York to Hollywood to make movies. And, and the picture had, was uh, him getting off uh, a plane, being surrounded by teenagers, and the headline said, Frankie Goes Hollywood. Mm. And okay. that's where it came from. See, I, I um, even from a young age, my assumption was always that the Holly in Hollywood was meant to imply Holly Johnson. 
and that the band you guys were essentially saying it'd be like if you named your band little johnny goes to nasherland like we're going to yeah this holly is going to change your life he's going to break you out of little frankieville into the glitz and glam of his hollywood and and which kind of fits what i think the band did in a way and so that's why i've always assumed that's what the meaning behind the band was am i completely way off <laughs> well i can only tell you but i can only tell okay. you what i've been told and what i've said that uh, you know, a thousand times. Sure. Yeah, that's okay. an interesting interpretation, John. Yeah. <laughs> I just, uh, you know, I thought it was sort of like, come along, Holly Johnson's going to take you for a ride to Hollywood that you're never going to believe. You know, that's kind of what my thinking yeah. of it was. And, uh, okay, so that's that's why I wanted to get that out of the way. So the thing that, one of the things <laughs> that I thought was most interesting about your book was that it seemed to me, and maybe you can, you can cover this, uh, clarify this for me. It almost seems like you joining Frankie Goes to Hollywood is a matter of you being in the right place at the right time. Is that? Do I have that about right? Yeah, I, I think I think you know when all of these things happen, it, 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 you know, um, it, everything in the music industry about being successful, and I, su- I suppose it goes right across the board to life. Everything is about being in the right place at the right time, isn't it? Yeah, you know, um, you know, when you meet where you first meet your friends that you meet when you first time you go for a job interview and get a job, it's I have quite a um, a fatalistic attitude towards life that you just walk this road and Uh whatever happens to you is 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 going to happen, you know, Um, and and I think. I think it's that's everything in music has been in the right place at the right time. Not not so much myself uh, uh, in that occasion, but but more so the band as well. You know, being you know it, everything everything is a series of coincidences, true. and okay. it's it's they are random coincidences. You know, you look at something like uh, Trevor Horn's recording the Yes 90125 album and every Friday they would sit down in the studio and watch the tube and he sees us on the tube and that's the first thing he sees and then you know sometime later he's listening to it John John Peel and here's a session of us while he's listening to it so he's had these two exposures to Frankie and you know if he's in a different studio doing a different thing if he's on holiday if he's God knows where, he doesn't see that, yeah. and that doesn't happen, right? And you know, it's 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 the same kind of thing, really. It's uh, yeah, it's it's all circumstance, and I guess I think it's all meant to be. Sure, you know, these, sure. These things, these these ups and downs of life is just what what happens, right? Um, you know, and I feel very fortunate to have uh, to have ridden that roller coaster, so yeah. to speak. Because wasn't there? So you're. We should establish your cousin Mark. O'Toole is the bass player and Frankie goes to Hollywood, correct? Yeah. And you're, yeah. and I mean, does it, does it, with the formation, if you're going to ask me about the formation of the band, it was, I was in a band with Ped and Holly right. and two other people and Ped left and then Holly left about two or three weeks later. And in the meantime, Ped had hooked up with Mark O'Toole and it was just the two of them. Mm. And then, Holly kind of joined them. Okay. I mean, which kind of flies in the face of, of Holly's thing about uh, he, he, his st- version of that is, 
oh, I was looking around Liverpool for some great musicians yeah. to uh, to get involved with. Well, that really wasn't the truth. He'd kind of um, he decided to sack off the music and was going to go to our college. Mm. But you know, never let never let his uh, Bowie and David Bowie inspired us from Mars analogy get in the way of it. Sure. You know what I mean? Sure, yeah. yeah. But um, but like, but, but the riffs were relaxing to drive, which is basically just the, with, with just the drums and bass. Before they ever got involved with Holly. Oh, really? So, oh, okay, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. No, and, well, this is this is it. see, this is the this is because that's not the version that Holly tells. You sure. Know? Sure. It was, and then and then Jed joined in with them. Yeah. And then Paul joined. I, they went on tour as a four-piece support in a band from Liverpool called Hamby and the Dance. And Paul Rutherford was uh, doing backing vocals for Hamby and the mm. Dance. And Jordan wanted these support slots. I think I was actually at, I was actually at the gig watching it because I seen Frankie play two or three times. Okay. Uh, before I joined them, and Paul jumped up with them, and that, that was kind of like and Paul was going, "I oh, love the music," and he wanted to join. And then there was Jed. Uh, basically was in a position where he he just he was uh, just had a kid. And he, he he was looking for a bit of um, I think stability for that uh-huh. you know going forward between his girlfriend and and his son, so he left and and because I knew everyone who was there apart from Paul really I didn't really know Paul. They asked me to join. And yeah, that was that's where it started. Yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, if Jed hadn't done that, or if you know you hadn't been a phone call away. None of that may have ever happened, but it just it just worked out that you were kind of top of mind once Jed stepped out, you know. Well, yeah, is- because of, because I'd been in I'd been in bands with uh, I'd, I obviously I knew Mark, yeah, because he was my cousin. I'd known sure. him since I was a kid, and and I'd been in bands with Holly and Ped before, right? So they they knew me. It wasn't like I was um, I, I was like someone who who was 
who was who didn't know anybody That's there. Yeah, I, I was point. known to all of them, you know, and I and yeah. I kind of I was capable of doing what they were doing. Yeah. Okay. So uh, they asked me first. I mean, when you start bands like that, it's ne- it's never usually about ability. It's about someone who you, you want to get on with and, <laughs> yeah, and you think looks the part, isn't it? Right. You know. Right. So, uh, and I think that still applies. Yeah. You know, still applies today. Yeah. Who has the right gear? Who drives a van? Whose house can we you yeah. know, uh, practice in? <laughs> whose, dad's, whose dad's got a PA? <laughs> exactly. All that kind of stuff. That <laughs> feeds into all of it. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, um, okay. So you talked about this in the book and, you know, there's a now a sort of infamous clip of the guys performing relax in what looks like some kind of like a gay brothel or something like that. It's, I think you called it the legendary clip or something. Um, yeah. You know, Holly and Paul are barely wearing anything. And it's, it's a very post-punk, that sort of bass heavy post-punk sound that was big at the time, but doesn't sound anything like what we come to know relax to be. Is that the clip that Trevor saw or heard somewhere that made him think we have a hit here and I'm the guy to do this? No, I think the clip he seen was one that we'd done. Um, it was the one when we t- uh, played for the Tube in Newcastle. And again, you know, you would talk about coincidences. There was, um, the Tube was like, it was a real, like, cool program for everyone who was into music, used to watch the Tube. And it was the, it was kind of like the first music, first music program in the UK yeah. to have proper live music that sounded, you know, that the people behind the boards and, and who did the mixing and that had a clue what they were doing. So it always, the, just the bands on there always sounded good. Yeah. So anyway, our manager sends, the video, the very first video you're talking about, which is the legendary Hope and Anchor video. Yeah, that's it. He sends that off to the tube, and it's sitting on someone's desk, uh, and there's a biog there saying this is a band from Liverpool, and the tube we're about to do uh, in about a couple of months' time. We're going to go to to Liverpool to you know to see uh, to do a piece about Echo and the Bunny Men on about about the Liverpool music scene, that post-punk Eric scene. Uh huh. And the, the guy who was the producer of the show picks this video up and goes, oh, these are on. Who are these? These are from Liverpool. Let's see what these are like. And he throws it in the machine and goes, right, we got to have these on. Wow. we got two girls wearing next to nothing. You know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah. So that was, uh, again, another amazing coincidence. Yeah, so then we, we did this, the clip for the tube. 
and uh, and Trevor seen that. I said because like people who were who were involved in music who had who, who thought anything about music would, would watch the tube on a, yeah. on, a, on a Friday evening. You know, it was it was quite anarchic. Yeah, and and they always had great bands on as well. Yeah, and of course the tube the tube of, of always taking uh, taking credit for us and rightly so. You know, they mm-hmm. they were the ones who, who put us on, and we were we were. When we released the single, we were it, I think that it was about number fifty-four, oh. or something in the charts, and the tube put us on, and it got actually yeah, it was fifty-four and it had gone down to fifty-five, and because they had had us on before, they invited us up to uh, to to the studio in Newcastle, and we did like a a, a live vocal thing over a over a backing mm-hmm. track, mm-hmm. and that was the thing that. Kicked it from there to thirty six, which meant we got top of the pops. Right, and it went from thirty six to six on the back of that. So we, it's crazy. It's all of these things that yeah, crazy. Know, it, it, it's like someone has written, <laughs> written it out for you, you know, beforehand. So yeah, that's it's nuts. Just the way it rolls. I should say I uh, I lived in England in nineteen ninety one, and I still remember I used to watch the tube on Friday nights, and uh, Amanda Decadne was the host, if I remember right, back then. And um, the first yeah, time yeah. I the first time I ever saw Nirvana was on the tube, and I remember thinking, "This is not these aren't these guys aren't going anywhere. This is nothing." And it's, sure enough, they yeah. changed the world shortly after that. But shows what I know. A mate, oh. a mate of mine was telling told me a great story about Nirvana that he, he he was into his music and he he was always he was also into collecting um, first and second world war memorabilia. No, oh. and he said there was a guy who he knew in Seattle, and. Uh, he was uh, he'd gone over to visit him and, and he, he knew my mate was into his music and he said, I want to take you to this club to see this band. And he said he went in there to there's about fifty to hundred people no all way. going crazy for this band. And he said, I walked out after about two songs. He said it was just horrible and it was yeah. Nirvana. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like he'd said it, seen them in some dodgy club in Seattle. Like I was gonna yeah. can't think where it was. Yeah, it didn't it didn't hit me off the bat that this was going to change anything. I thought they were pretty normal or uh unspecial I should say, you know. Um okay. So Trent, now I I got to say I um I, your book kind of bummed me out about Trevor cuz I think Trevor's kind of a, a a genius. I love I love him. I love almost all the music he's ever put out there. And your negative uh experience it was just so sad, and I can see. I'm not. I'm not arguing that you had that experience because I can totally see where all of that would have happened and neg- negatively impacted you. And it's such a shame. And and uh, I mean, I guess if you could summarize for the listeners what it was that basically happened is that I mean, he sort of just took over everything with you guys, the sound, the uh, production, and chalked up these gigantic budgets along the way. And uh, any royalties made from this gigantic hit of yours was largely going back to him and his record label, ZTT. You guys weren't really seeing much of anything, correct? Because of how much he invested in you. Yeah, I am. Um, I mean, it, it's a thing. It's when you explain to people who, who, who've never been involved in the music industry, they, they think that, you know, if they go down to Woolworths with their pound for their record and they yeah. buy that record for the they think that's going into your pocket because it's your record. And like, the truth of it is, is you don't make money until you recoup your investment. Mm-hmm. And and one would think that okay, if 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 we if we 
if we spend £100,000 making a record, then the first 100,000 sales will go to counteract that and then we'll start making some money. Yeah. When really, the first 100,000, you've got to pay back that 100,000 pounds out of your 6%. Yeah. So for every single you sell, six pence goes against the 100,000. Oh my gosh. And it got to the stage where, I mean, we were quite fortunate that we, we, when we signed a publishing deal, the the advances we got, it was something like a hundred pound each. Oh. I think we got like 500 quid advance between oh us for gosh. the publishing. Oh man. And, uh, so like, you know, as soon as Relax Chartered, we, we, we recouped that. And I think the record advance was something similar. It was absolutely laughable. Yeah. But you know, it was, it, it more so got out of hand on the second recording, the second album when he'd run up something like, 1.2 million pounds worth of recording costs. Yeah. Uh, which was, and you know, get. I mean, the biggest thing is getting towards the end when you've got a single like they released uh, Watching the Wildlife from the Liverpool album. Mm And it was plain to see to everyone who was around there that this band wasn't going any further than this. Mm -hmm. And yet he took on things like, like, basically like a vanity project to go, well, you know what, I'm going to do an orchestral version and we're going to get some guy to come in and he's going to charge 40 grand to do the score. <laughs> and then we're going to get 120 piece orchestra in. So you do a 12 inch mix that basically costs you yeah. 80 or 90 grand. Ugh. So you, so even if you even if even if you sell a million, you're not gonna get your money back. Yeah. So it, it got to the stage where we didn't act, we didn't make any money from record sales until uh, Frankie's the Bang, the greatest hits of Frankie Goes to Hollywood mm -hmm. came out, mm -hmm. which was five years after the band split up. Yeah. And even then, we, because it's a greatest hits and um, it's not classed as new material. We were on a quarter of the royalty rate, so our six percent, or eight percent in in this country, six percent for the rest of the world, uh -huh. was cut to one and a half percent and two percent, <laughs> and you know it was just an it was just an appallingly bad deal. Yeah. And and what's worse is that all through all through the time since the band has split up, and we've gone in and said to them, you know, this is a joke, man. We, yeah. you, you just we're getting absolutely fleeced. Yeah. Not once did he sit down in a room with us. He pushed members of his family in front of us when we've yeah. had disputes with them. Yeah. He, he even sent his kid, his, his 21-year-old kid, to yeah. turn up to represent him at, at a lawyer's meeting. The kid comes in on a skateboard. Oh, my gosh. And, and, it's like, and he's nice guy, Trevor. 
and one day my my path will cross. I, I will cross paths with him, and he'll get what he's had coming from mm. me for a very long time. And I'm going to call him out yeah. for being the absolute. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but yeah, go ahead. We call you him. We call him an absolute shit house. <laughs> He's a shit house, and he wouldn't front up. And he'll get it, and I'll tell him, and and I'll just say to him, "You're an, you're an absolute disgrace." You know, Mister Nice Guy Trevor, but you know, yeah. oh Trevor's this, Trevor's that. He's lovely. Trevor doesn't do business. That's the one that was thrown at us all the time. Oh well, you know, Trevor's not a businessman. Yeah, of course he's not. Yeah, of course he's not a businessman. Yeah. Wow. If you're not a businessman, you don't end up running your own label. Right and 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 having your own studio, you know, you you, you can't you, don't be hiding behind that like oh he's an artist and he doesn't want to get involved with business. Yeah, he knew exactly where all the pennies were going. Yeah. As did his wife. I mean, there's, there's a story I told in the book about uh, borrowing a drum machine. Like they, they were in the studio doing something, and we were in another studio downstairs, and we said, "Can we borrow this drum machine?" He said, "Yeah, sure, take it." And then uh, then like six weeks later. You get the invoice oh for the hire gosh. of the drum machine, you know, to, to, for the, and, and you know what, this isn't the businessman. Yeah. Well, his wife wasn't there in the studio when we took the drum machine, so someone's told there oh, that man. we took the the, uh, the Roland 808, and we got a bill for it. That's crazy. It, you know, are you telling me that's not a businessman, yeah. John? Yeah. Of course he knows, of course he knows where it was going, and, and that's the disappointing thing. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it's, it, it could have been so much better, and we deserve to be treated a bit better than we were. Absolutely. And, you know, we're, we're at a situation now where his entity have folded and our catalogue has been passed on. Uh, I think in a year's time, it goes completely to Universal Music. And we're, hopefully we can go in and speak to them and say, look, you know, yeah, let's renegotiate and, and let's see what they've done. And, oh. you know, it's... It's just a sh- it's a shambles, and you look at the way some of the rec- the, the records have been treated. I mean, I don't know whether it was in the book uh, about the um, the mono release of Liverpool. I can't remember if if it. I don't remember that part. Out by yeah, they released a, a deluxe version of the Liverpool album, and it's gone out, and it's mono, uh-huh. but it's not even it's not even it's not even too uh, left and right squashed to mono it was the left hand side mirrored on both sides what and this has been this has been pressed and put out so it makes you think who's <laughs> listening to this it's certainly not him oh my and, gosh and who's, who's the, who's... wow well, yeah, you know it, you, you you there's plenty of you could you can go and have a look at that sure. now so when that album came out we said we're not having that yeah you know, you're just you're just rip, you're just ripping off our fans and then and you have to pay for that. that they, yeah. Of course, yeah. Well, we we, they, we made them withdraw it. Um, we threw a couple of hand grenades in there and said, this is a joke. You know, this is yeah. a, this is a, a very poor representation of a, an album yeah. that cost best part of two million quid. And oh now you're sticking gosh. it out in mono. And you know what, the, you know what this, is the, this is the brass neck of these people. They said... Oh yeah, back to mono like Phil Spector. This is how they were trying to flog this album, and oh it was like, but it's not even mono. Right, it's, le- it's the left hand side mirrored on both sides. So every anything that was panned hard right in the recording uh-huh. has completely disappeared. That's awful. That that shouldn't even well, be out well, there, and he should know better. Well, well, this is the thing that this makes you think. Then, well, who's making these decisions, and who's putting? 
who was even mastering this? Yeah. How could you not know? How could you not know just by simply listening to it? Wow. That something's wrong, you know? Yeah. So crazy. So let me yeah. let me ask I you this: you could probably you could probably find that online now, John. There's a few of them knocking about because uh, wow. after the original furore and and us stamping our feet, yeah. and saying we're not having it, it they eventually pieces of them are dribbling. I'm fascinated, but I'm, I'm going to go look up. If gonna, I'm wondering if they'll stick it out for a record store day one day. Oh yeah, so, yeah. Come and have your come and have your mono vinyl, right? <laughs> Well, let me uh, let me ask you this. I mean, do the do you know if like ABC and Grace Jones and Propaganda and those kind of did they have similar beefs with with Trevor about all this kind of stuff? I mean, you sold more than those bands, and yet your beef seems a little stronger. Why do you suppose that is? Are you just more outspoken well, ABC, than they are? A, no, ABC uh, were were not signed to ZTT, so oh, basically that's the Trevor's issue. getting okay. trapped. Gets drafted in, yeah, and gets told, right, you got, you got hundred grand to make this album. Got if you it. don't make the album for hundred grand, you don't get paid. You know what I mean? So, yeah. and the Grace Jones thing, I mean, Slave to the Rhythm was a, was originally, it's like what we would call the Germanic, um, like the stomping, marching uh, version of Slave to the Rhythm that Grace Ooh. Jones did, the quite up tempo one. Yeah. Well, that was offered to that was offered to us first. You mentioned that. That's uh, one of my favorite songs of all time. I can't I can't believe that was offered to you at one point. This is the thing that they went into the studio to do this, to do a single, yeah. to do this slave to the rhythm with Grace Jones. And you know, I'll give this to Trevor. He he, he sees a title in his head, uh-huh. and he sees what that would look like on a book. And slave to the rhythm by Grace Jones looks fantastic. But they ended up spending so much money and fucking around for so long. They had to turn it into an album. They had so many versions of it uh-huh. that they had to get their money back, and yeah. that's how it became the album. That, but, you know, funny. with regards, regards to everyone who was signed to ZTT, I don't think there's a single band that didn't leave under the cloud. Yeah. Everybody had disagreements with them because they, were, they were just went, you don't play fair. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's the, the thing. Oh, you know, the, you, you would think, I don't, I don't know you, John, I've never met you, but if, you know, if me and you have got a label together and we've got a band that have just done millions mm-hmm. and they're getting absolutely shafted, don't we go? Well, you know what? We should give them a little bit of a better Absolutely. deal than they get. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. And, and the worst thing about it is, when this went to court, it was deemed 
I think it was the first time that that the artist has has, has been allowed to be released from their contract and not being given their catalogue. I mean, the judge wow. made a real fudge of it. He said this this contract is unenforceable going forward, meaning that we can't make any new material under this contract. Yet they've released they've released a dozen oh, albums, yeah. Yeah. and we've and we've still been bound by that same thing. That's terrible. You know, by that the same crappy agreement, and yeah. every time we've gone in to sit down with them. They don't want to know. They were like, you know, we were fortunate, and it was an oversight on their part that they neglected to uh, take the merchandising rights. In yeah, the, I wanted to ask you about merchandising that. Merchandising rights in, in the um, in the contract. So when we went in to see them, and, and they were going like, "Well, you know, what about if we do a fifty-fifty on the merchandise? We think that's fair." I nearly grabbed the guy by the scruff of the neck, and I was going like, "Fair? Why are you talking about fair? Right. Yeah, let, let's talk about fair." Let's talk about 8% and 6% for the rest of the world for the last 15 years. That's crazy. You know what I mean? You're, yeah. a, you're a joke. And the only time they would entertain speaking to us is either if we got a lawyer onto them, as we did over the deluxe mono version, <laughs> or or they wanted something off us like the merchandising rights, because they'd be, obviously had a merchandising company come on and gone, these Frankie say they lack t shirts are smashing it. You could be you could be knocking it out of the park here with right, these. Right. You know, there's more there's more money in t shirts than there is in records in there these know. days. I know. So it's awful. No, not nice people. Oh. They will get what's coming for them in the next world. Yeah. Something all right, so let's uh let's get back to the band and the you know, the popularity and all that kind of stuff. One thing that I I um I thought was kind of interesting about your book is that and maybe this is, you know, my Puritan American perspective, but it seemed very uh, much like Frankie Goes to Hollywood was meant to be sort of a gay band or a band that was like throwing, you know, uh, homosexuality rant, like out there, rampant, big and proud ra- homosexuality in Americans face. And I don't know if that was truly the plan or if that's just, you know, Holly and Paul being out and proud about it. How did you feel? I never quite got the sense of how you felt being in a band that was sort of marketed that way. And I'm sure that it probably didn't, you know, it's not that you would have had an issue with homosexuality, but more as a kid who wants to be a rock star when he grows up, is this the kind of band that you imagined yourself always being in? Is this sort of, you know, out and proud gay band? Was that what you, was that fulfilling your dreams? Oh, yeah, yeah, I think... Uh, you know what? Whether it be in an out and out gay band or with a longer metal band in spandex trousers, you would take a job as a musician yeah. or a career as a musician, whichever way it comes, wouldn't you? Really? True. True. I mean, it, with, with, I, I never, I never kind of, the way I was brought up, I'd never had any prejudice against gay people. No. People, you know, that's right. that, that's how I was taught, and. Uh, the thing that I thought was was quite interesting was like the whole S and M aspect mm-hmm. of right. of uh, when you know people would go like it's all that S and M gay gear you know mm-hmm. and you see movies like Cruise and 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 then there'd be <laughs> what, what was the what was the name of the the, uh, the hell hole or the mine shaft or something, right. something like really right. the top gay club in New York right when really the way we looked at it was it wasn't any the way we looked wasn't anything to do with s and m and and a gay bonded scene it was all about mad max oh because really mad max two was mad max two was such a massive 
influence on us. That, that's what we wanted to dress like. That, oh. So it wasn't any, anything to, to think like, now maybe Holly and Paul might have, might have thought another yeah. thought a different way, but that's what we saw. Maybe maybe that's what they told us it looked like just to make get us dressed yeah, like that. Right, right. <laughs> but it was, but you know, uh, Mad Max was such a huge influence. I mean, uh, you know, when two great warrior tribes go to war, that was that was a line directly lifted from Mad Max. When uh, when we did our early gigs, our intro music was the theme tune from Mad Max. Mm. So it was, um, or rather, Mad Max Two, rather. So. Okay. That had a massive influence, and I can't say going through to uh, working for the Black Gas. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's in the narration in Mad Max too. Okay, the okay, Black gold or something like that. Okay, yeah, I uh, I couldn't get a sense of whether you thought this was a little weird. Like I didn't know if maybe you know the majority of the people coming to see your shows were black men in you know bondage outfits and all that kind of stuff, and you just thought I- I'm a straight guy who just joined. Thought I joined a rock and roll band. Where am I? You know, that didn't I, I happen think, to you. Uh, I think I think like myself and a lot of lot of the younger people who bought our records. I think the whole gay thing was kind of lost on them. Mm. You know, I, I don't remember going to uh, playing gigs. I mean, the, the first tour we did uh, of America, I don't remember that looking at the audiences and thinking these are a, there's a load of gay guys. Here. Oh, okay. It was um, the people who the people who first came to see us. Were were Anglophiles people mm. who people who who followed British music from from the states. Of course, the places we we played on that first American tour, I guess they'd have been a little bit more enlightened than like probably mm. True. going to places like uh, yeah. I don't know Kansas or somewhere <laughs> right. or Nebraska, you right. know, or anywhere in the Bible Belt. I think we I think we did get a bit of static down in in Texas. Okay. But no, everybody. I, I don't remember seeing anything in 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 the like reflected in the audience. They were all just groovy, okay, young young students and that. You know okay. what I mean? But yeah. I say people who who, who dig who were digging the uh, the British music scene at the time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure. Now let me ask you this: Did did Paul and Holly were they ever a couple, or were they just two gay men in a band and lived very much their own separate lives? Oh no, no, they were never a couple. They were, they were, uh, they just known each other. Okay. You know, they they both uh, hung out on the same scene as yeah. Eric's as punks. So uh, no. Okay. I don't think they were ever each other's type either. Okay. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And uh, you know, I've always been sort of, um, I've always found Paul's role in the band sort of fascinating. He he reminds me of um, who's the guy in the Happy Mondays that um, uh, yes. yes. Yeah, Bez. he's he's like yeah. the he's Bez. He's like the party starter. You know, he doesn't have like an official role where he's necessarily playing something that's you know so specific or or needed in the band. It's more that he's singing back up, getting the party going. Uh, is that sort of more Paul's role? Yeah, uh, do you know, it's uh, I don't really want to get into into putting Holly down, but if okay. you've seen any of Holly's performances like recently that are out there. Uh, he was never the greatest thing to look at on stage. Mm. I mean, Paul's, I think Paul's role, and it became more so as, as the bands went on, was to be to be like the cheerleader and to be someone who's, who's running around. And maybe Holly couldn't do that as much because he's got to sing as well. But yeah. um, 
it's uh, no, he, he 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 he's just Paul. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Paul, isn't he? That's it. It's what he. It's what he does, and um, it's uh, I, I, it's really funny you mentioned Bez. I always remember Bez being it to say like, "What do you do, Bez?" Yeah. And he just said. I do what I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but what is that? Look, I just do what I do. Yeah. But the band wouldn't That's be the Paul same does. without him. That's, you know, he, who knows what he's doing, but whatever he's doing, it's working. It's important in the, in the scope of the band. That's why I think Paul's role is so fascinating. Plus, he just seems like such a nice, fun guy. Or at least he did in the Bands Reunited episode from a few years ago. It just seemed like such a good guy. <laughs> No, John. I've I've known I've known the guy, you know, since I was nineteen years old, and in all that time, although I haven't seen him a lot, I I, I, I converse with him on Facebook. He's, he's he's currently in Thailand, sitting on a beach. Really? And, uh, <laughs> and I've never had a cross word with him. Good. He's he's just it's just a lovely what you see is what you get with him. He's yeah. just a lovely guy, you know. Um, uh, he's someone I hold deep in my heart. He's, he's a top fella. Good. He seems that way. Um, okay. So what I want to, you know, let's get into the band and the and the first album. Welcome to the uh, Pleasure Dome. Which I got to say that track. I think again. I know we've established Trevor here, but I think that the the long version of Welcome to the Pleasure Dome is one of the most incredibly produced songs in music history to me. I'm curious if you are you do you even play very much on that first album? Are you on there? Can you hear no, yourself? You, when you talking about when you talk about uh, about pleasure Tone itself, I, I think there's there's someone who 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 gets lost in the Trevor Horn shadow, and that's Steve Lipson. Ah, okay. and Steve played played the uh, the kind of Floydish guitar solo on mm. on uh, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome, and. Uh, he was the guy who was going, look, you know, we've got these things now to lock two digital machines together mm. in sync. And it means, well, basically, we can just copy 16, 32 bars of this onto this other machine in sync. 
and we can we can go as long as and without any deterioration in the quality of the sounds because it was being bounced digitally and it was Steve Lipson who who, who for me was was uh, you know at the forefront of doing things like that mm. and he's he's a, he's a, he was a very talented guy and again you know Trevor kind of like uh, it, it kind of it kind of takes a lot of the limelight for all of the records that he's done. But you've got to remember, he has, he's had great people working with him. You know, yeah. people like the likes of Anne Dudley, mm, you know, yes. who, who did the string arrangement for The Power yeah. of Love. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, just just good good people. Having a good team. Is, uh, people like uh, Louis Jardin, uh, mm. the percussion player. You know, outstanding. outstanding. And if, if it's, you know, it, it's like it's like assembling a football team or a basketball right. team. It, it, if you've got great people in that team, you know, mm-hmm. Michael Jordan might be the guy who's, who's getting all the headlines out of it, but it's the other guys as well who are making sure. it, who are making it for him. You know, yeah. there's, there's a, and I'd say, yeah, that like Trevor was, was like that. Trevor's like, a, I'd say like your star quarterback, but he can yeah. only do it while the others are doing their job as well. True. And, and they have a lot to, uh, they have a lot to, yeah, a lot to, uh, to be credited for, really. Right. Okay. But do you, I mean, do you hear your actual playing? Are you, I mean, I hope this isn't too dumb of a question. Are you even playing on Relax or on that album? Or did you? Oh, did, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I didn't know if yeah, Trevor did, oversaw it so much with his other, with his team of people that you almost got completely nudged out of the final mix. Yeah, of well, everything. I think, I think the, the stuff that you can hear, like, uh, the stuff that sounds like real that sounds like real instruments uh-huh. would have been us. Like like for example, I always tell the story about doing Born to Run. idea that that was I think it was Morley Morley's idea he said we should do it because it'll piss Americans off <laughs> and we're going like and, and at the time I'd never even heard this. none of us had even heard the tune right. so we said well what does it go like and we said I'll tell you what you know what we won't listen to it just get us the uh, get us the sheet music so we got the sheet music and we went in there and played it how we thought it should be played yeah. which was like you know uh-huh. at 100 mile an hour right. and I, I 
I think it's a, I think it's a great it's a great version. Of, sure, uh, it is. Of, but of it is the, kind uh, of sacrilegious. I mean, you you probably know that now. Not too many bands would would attempt to cover a song like that the way you guys did it. It's almost sacrilege, but you pulled it off anyway. You know, but that's what you, you were trying what, to John, do. I'd, 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 I'd love to know. I'd love to know if, uh, if if Bruce Springsteen was looking at his publishing statements one day and <laughs> has gone, true. "Who's this? Who's this Frankie guys? Who's right. these Frankie guys?" And I'd love to know what Bruce thought of it because yeah. there's a uh, every Bruce Springsteen fan <laughs> I've met absolutely hates it. Really? <laughs> and it was like, I've got a, a mate. A mate of mine is is a huge Springsteen fan, and. Uh, well, I, I always do, I always wind him up about it, and he, uh-huh. he, he usually comes back with, "You should all be very ashamed of yourselves." <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great, that's great. Oh, well, now you mentioned you know real instruments and playing. I in the book you are very uh, you don't like the song "Maximum Joy" from Liverpool. I actually really like that song, and one of the reasons is that there's a great guitar solo in that song. Is that you, or was that somebody else? Yeah, no. The, 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 you have to find the original demo of uh, of of Maximum Joy. Yeah. I, if I've got it somewhere, mate, I'll email it to you. Oh, I'd love but that. It was basically was um, we were over in a beta recording and. I was up before everyone else, and, and the engineer was in there, and I just said, "Just can you just give me a?" Uh, I was just messing about with some some uh, uh, echo pedal and a bass drum, uh, a bass drum on a drum machine, and it started from that. And there is a that, the most disappointing thing about the Liverpool album was when we came back, we went to Holland to record it. We did like two. I think two four week stretches of recording, and when we when we came back, the tune sounded great. Uh, they were a bit more rocky and had a bit more attitude, but also lent lent themselves to being played live more mm-hmm. because we didn't want to be taking these because we we had to take out uh, on the first tour we had a, a machine called an emulator PPG Wave Term, 
which which basically played the eight part sequence for Relax to do the percussion okay. and the grand piano sample and all of that. Mm-hmm. And from time to time, it would fuck up and go astray. No, and so you end up having to trash through Relax. So it, anything that that took the reliance on technology out of the live situation mm-hmm. was was going to be great for us. And there were a lot of the stuff that we recorded in Holland, like Maximum Joy, was like, wow, this is great. You know, this is quite heavy and it's quite rocky. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm don't, i not sure whether Holly didn't like it very much or whether he didn't like the, the, the direction of the music. But it, a lot of it changed. And Maximum Joy was one of those tracks. And okay. it was like, when we came back from Holland, we had this, this monster that was like like a thoroughbred racehorse legging it mm-hmm. over the last five furlongs, mm-hmm. which turned into this kind of like it just didn't sound anything like what we'd come out of Holland with. Right. And, and uh, you know, t- you know, I, I know people have the same opinion as yourself, and which I love. That t- it's one of my favourite tracks. Right. And it, it's quite interesting that in the last couple of years, I've done it on my own. Mm. But like, kind of lent more towards the way it was when we recorded it. You know, just getting mm. the loop pedal and getting the echoes going, and all the rest of it. And uh, I got to play it with um, with my band. Oh, cool! I, got to, I played a gig with the band for the first time uh, about three, two or three months ago, and we started the set with it, and they just absolutely smashed it. Nice. It was it was great. And the guys, the guys like playing it as well. Who gives them? My guitar, my guitar player is a, is a pretty tidy guitar player. Yeah. It was quite funny when uh, we were rehearsing. He automatically goes for above the twelfth fret. <laughs> so whenever we were rehearsing, I said, "Okay, mate, you got a guitar solo here," and and he goes right up for the twelfth. I went, "Nah, start down at the bottom, go to, do something low, right. and then for the second eight bars, go up the top." So anyway, in in the adrenaline of the gig. <laughs> 
he just goes, he goes starting about the 15. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, everything got, got but no, he's, he, he oh, that's great. Solo. he's good. He's a great player. Okay. Yeah. I, re I remember so well uh, seeing the video for Warriors of the Wasteland on MTV when I was, I don't know, 13, 14 years old. then seemed like a conscious decision from the band that and I mean I'm you know I'm a kid I'm not that intuitive but it seemed to me a little bit like we are going to establish here that we're a band that plays actual instruments and we want to rock a little bit harder it reminded me a little bit of what uh aha did on their second album their first one you know had take on me and everything and then their first single off the second album is called I've been losing you and it rocks. And and I wondered if it was yeah. kind of meant to send the same message. Like, no, we're we're a real band. We like rock music. We're here to prove that to everybody. Was that the purpose behind Liverpool? I, I, I think, I think you, you, you kind of half, half there, but we're going back okay. to what I was saying about five things. I mean, you look at, you look at uh, artists like Coldplay and Ed Sheeran, for yeah. example, that Coldplay, I, I've got a lot of time for Coldplay. I thought the first three albums had some fantastic tunes on it. So do but I. these were songs that were written. These were songs that were written to be played in small clubs or theaters if they were lucky. Mm. And mm. it's the same thing with Ed Sheeran. When Ed Sheeran was first writing his songs, when he wrote, you know, the A Team and Lego Lego House and that, he was he was playing to fifty people and 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 a couple of dogs, you know. So. But as soon as they start going transferring this into arenas, so like let's say uh, Coldplay play Charlie Brown in front of eighty thousand people, mm. and the place goes absolutely nuts, mm -hmm. and you know that for the next few years they are the kind of gigs that you're going to be doing. Mm -hmm. So it kind of drags your songwriting towards mm. like the four of you in the room going, "This is going to sound fucking amazing yeah. at Wembley." Yes, and and the same things kind of happen with Ed Sheeran as well. That he, he's he's kind of gone down the hippity hop. You don't stop, and it's all gone a bit funky yeah. and a bit sing along. Right. And I think that was a, that was a lot of the thing with Liverpool. We wanted to get it down to because we toured and, and, and we knew. Of course, we had all that bullshit about oh these guys can't play, they can't play, they can't play. Mm -hmm. And of course, ZTT never counted any of that. Mm -hmm. You know, they, sure. they, it it fueled them to make them look better than they actually were. If it was like oh. You know, these, these people can't play. But yeah, I don't recall anyone ever saying that about any other album that Trevor on 
produced. You know what I mean? And had all the same guys that we had playing on it, you know. Yeah. But no one ever, no, no, that accusation was was never leveled at any of those other musicians. And to be honest, it it hurts. I mean, I wouldn't have claimed to have been the greatest guitar player in the world, but I'll tell you what, Mark O'Toole and Peter Gill Mm -hmm. as as a rhythm section, I'd like someone to stand next to Mark O'Toole when he's playing Two Tribes and telling him he can't play. Exactly. Listen to that bass solo that he plays in. In uh, Born to Run, and tell him that he can't play. Yeah. This was a, this was a kid. This was a kid who was nineteen, twenty years old when he was doing this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And And I think it's, I think it's hugely disrespectful to to for them not to say it. You know, like oh yeah, yeah, well, yeah, they didn't. You know, you have the likes of Morley saying right. like oh to get, saying oh yeah, the guitarist only got a guitar two weeks ago. Well, you might think that's funny, mate, but here we are now. 30 odd years later and people are still asking me about it yeah wild. <laughs> so, you know what I mean I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm entitled to feel a little bit pissed off about it sure. but hey you know it was yeah. a long time ago I don't have to I don't I, I, I know what I'm good at as good. a musician and good. I know what I'm good at as a songwriter as well so sure I've got nothing to prove to anyone well and your solo career that's been going strong now for a while proves that you have your own voice and your own musicality anyway. It, there's no way that you would have been a pawn in this bigger scheme if you hadn't been able to prove out your own abilities and talents after the fact as well as you have. So the the evidence that you know what you're doing is in your last four solo albums, I think. Well, you know the thing about it is, John, as well, it's music. It's supposed to bring enjoyment to people and, and the, the people who are creating it. And I say this to everybody, it's not a music. It's, it's not a competition. Mm-hmm. It, you know, if, if you can play three chords and you're playing great, you're the Ramones. They're yeah. not going to tell me the Ramones were rubbish musicians. It doesn't make any difference, does it? Yeah. It doesn't make any difference if they, if they couldn't play E minor. They, yeah. could, they could play 30 songs in about 90 minutes. It's true. So it, it's uh, it, it's all it's all an opinion. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I've got nothing to prove to anybody, yeah. least least of all myself. Uh, well, maybe myself. I want to prove to myself I can be a better songwriter than I am now. And I think I've done that with the last record I've done. And I've got better yeah. and better at it, which is, you know, it's... Um, you can only improve, can't you? With, yeah, with it, whether it's foreign, whether it's a foreign language, whether it's it's playing guitar or playing the bass or be doing a bit of DIY, 
if you go into it and put your heart and soul into it, you will get better yeah. at, at doing it the more that you do it. And that's where I'm at now. I, 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 I was very honoured to have worked with people like Steve Lipson and Trevor Horn, who told me and showed me that going into the studio to record your songs is not making a record. And this is this is the thing that I try to pass on to kids to go like, you know, you gotta you gotta pick you gotta pick these people up in the first four bars. Yeah. And and by the end of that song you've got to leave them in a quivering mesh with yeah. their knickers round their ankle. And and that's a different thing than going in and recording your song. Yeah. And that was something that I was made aware of very early. The dynamics that the pe- things that have it the spaces and holes for where things are supposed to happen, where your fireworks happen in that song. And it's an invaluable lesson. And it's something that I've applied to everything I've done myself and other recordings that I've been involved with, with other people. Yeah. Good. Okay. Well, so let me, uh, let's go to kind of near the end of the band. It, from the sound of the book, it sounds like Frankie, well, sorry, Frankie, Holly, uh, essentially sort of separates himself from everybody. He gets a boyfriend who I think they may even still be together, according to you, uh, Wolfgang. Yeah. And he just, he travels separately, stays separately. You really, he doesn't really sound check with you guys anymore. You just see him show up for performances. Is that right? Yeah, well, there was a bit of a fallout, uh, uh, what we call Arsgate at uh, Wembley Arena. Um it was, I, I think, I think um, when we were recording the Liverpool album, there was a confrontation um, when I think Wolfgang wasn't well and Holly's mind wasn't on, on the job. Mm-hmm. And he would, he, he would only do office hours, you know, so we'd turn up at like 11 o'clock in the morning and then, he, then he'd, he'd go by five. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't, doing, he wasn't doing the hours that we were doing. Right. And... We, we we sat down and had a meeting with him and, and it, it kind of like he seen it as we were attacking him when really we just we wanted him back in the gang. Sure. And you know, you know, and again, again, this is you know all due respect to Wolfgang. He's still with him now. He's obviously the, the man who who he's loved all his life. Yeah. But when Wolfgang came into the scene, he took the leader of our gang mm-hmm. out of our gang, mm-hmm. and that happened very early on. You know, that was like. In the first American tour, yeah, and I'd seen, I'd seen Ho- Holly just became a different person. I think, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't mean that. I don't mean that in a, in a, in a critical way. And you, you, you got to understand the thing. I mean, it took me quite a while. It took me until actually reading this book to realize something that if you're a gay, if you're a gay youth growing up in Liverpool. Mm-hmm. Uh, your father and and the rest of your family are not very sympathetic to your your sexuality. The people who you who you meet in the street, if you're if you're a little bit outlandish and a little bit get you know a little bit off the norm in the way you dress, mm-hmm. you're gonna get a lot of shit. You're yeah. gonna get a lot of shit from people. Yeah. And uh, he was never a sportsman, so he's never been a team player. Mm-hmm. And what 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 you would say, what what we would look at it and go. He's just being a, he's just being a selfish git, you know. Mm-hmm. Why, why why can't he see it from our point of view? Right. But it's something that was in his nature, I think. And, and I, yeah. don't, I don't, you know, I, I don't think it, to, to a large degree. I don't think it was something that he could help. He's 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 never been a team player. 
and and you could you know when I got to learn a bit more about his background and his upbringing, then I can understand that okay. you know and and I can have some sympathy for it. And maybe you know those times when you're looking back and you're thinking, God, he was being such a fucking pain in the ass there. Right. But really, it was just it was just him being him. Yeah, you know, and I don't think he'd, he'd see it as being a pain in the ass. But you got to remember as well, you know, we were all still kids then. Sure, and, sure. and you think. Uh, you know, with the arrogance of youth, when the band comes to split up, you think, oh, well, we'll get rid of him, we'll get another singer, we'll get another deal. Right. You know, you think you're going to be the Rolling Stones, you think you're going to be doing this shit till you're 70. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, that's not going to happen. You yeah. know, it, you know, it's... Um, but, you know, yeah. time goes on. We've had a yeah. few fallouts and all that. I, I don't... I just... Uh, Do you keep in touch with him at all? It. Do you keep in touch with him at all? Uh, I bumped into him a couple of times, and... Uh, I, I was at a gig. I went to see the Lightning Seeds, and Rosie oh. Nosey and Brody from from way back, and we were both backstage. And um, I kind of like hid out of the way because I, I didn't want to make him feel awkward. You know uh-huh. what I mean? Uh-huh. But I, I was a couple of a couple of months. When was it actually? It had been earlier in the year. I think in January. I went to uh, the National Portrait Gallery. Uh, Martin Ware from Heaven Seventeen mm, was sure. curating uh, a night. Um, and Peter Coyle from the Lotus Eaters was. Yeah, I love Peter Coyle. And I, knew, I haven't seen Peter in 30 years. Uh, and so I went to see him. And as I was standing there, leaning, leaning against the wall in this gallery, Holly walked past me and he didn't see me. And uh, on the way out, I just said, you know what, I'm not going to spend the rest of my life walking around avoiding this fella. So I just right. went up and spoke to him and said, you know, Happy New Year, hope you're all right, you know, blah, blah, blah. And said, ta da. So. Okay. Okay, well, so the the reason I mentioned about uh, uh, Holly sort of separating himself was because I was curious if you thought would the if he had shown more enthusiasm to stick the band out, do you guys think you would have lasted a little bit longer? Did you follow his lead, or were there other uh, you know uh, negative things happening that just brought everybody down? I'm sure Trevor's um, situation wasn't helping, but do you think you would have continued on somehow? I don't know. I think when we when we come to do that the the tour for the Liverpool album, I think we all kind of knew that this was this was the end of it. You uh-huh. know, this was. Um, I don't. Know, I, I couldn't really put it, it. It wasn't something like a feeling that you could really put your finger on mm-hmm. and go that it was that. But it was. It was just. It was becoming harder and harder, and and I don't think he was really into the sound of. Of the record, yeah, I think the lyrics he wrote on Liverpool were light years ahead of the <laughs> lyrics on uh, on Pleasure Dome. I like Liverpool way uh, better than Pleasure Dome, by the way. I'm a m- much bigger fan of the <laughs> Liverpool album. <laughs> well, that's, I know that there are a few people there are a few people who said that to me before, and I think you know, I think Ple- I think Pleasure Dome could have been a very good single album. Yeah, you know, it would have been a fantastic single album. I don't think there was any need. For it to be the double, and maybe Pleasure Dome should have been like you know a two-sided twenty-four minute twelve-inch uh, yeah. rather than. Um, but I suppose once you get once once something is that long, it becomes very difficult to chop it down. Doesn't I it? don't know. Well, the, the song Pleasure Dome could go on for hours, as far as I'm concerned, and the singles off the album are great. It's just that there's some filler and the and the some of the odd covers and stuff like that. It's a fun album, but to me, Liverpool is more of like a succinct, start to finish, unique vision. You know, it's more of like a rock album. It's more, um, 
The other one's almost more of like a novelty. Not really. I hope that doesn't diminish. It's just uh, no, no. I I agree, I agree with you with regards okay. to the cover version. Yeah. You know that it's uh, San Jose. If I never hear that fucking yes. thing ever again in my life, <laughs> oh, it'll man. be fucking too soon. Yeah. Absolutely horrible. Hated every single note and bar of it. It's just, why, why are we doing Dion Warwick? What? Yeah. Did I miss a meeting? See, stuff like that, I feel like it kind of, it kind of weighs it down a little bit. Well, let me, let me ask you this. Do you have a favorite song? Now, I know no one likes to answer these questions, but in terms of a song that you got, that you played on, or the, was the recording of a song on any of those albums especially pleasurable? Do you have a favorite? Um, I don't know really. It's kind of it's 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 like trying to ask you, but you know, to pick which which one of your kids is your favorite kid. You know, it's, yeah. Uh, I didn't know I if just, like Ray Chard was especially fun because it rocks. Laugh like the head of Apollo, young and strong on the wings of tomorrow. Rise up. Relaxing two tribes. I'm so in love with you, purge the soul. 
I was telling, I was telling, so I did, did an interview the other day, and I love hearing it in uh, random situations. And two, uh, one that happened to me most recently. I was in my local supermarket near Christmas time, of course, uh-huh. when they're playing all the uh, Christmas tunes throughout the store. Right. And I'm walking, I'm pushing my trolley one way up an aisle, and coming the opposite way is is a young woman, I guess, probably in her late 20s, 30s, uh, Eastern European, possibly Polish, with a baby, uh, like a two-year-old, sitting in, in the trolley. And the power of love is playing, and as I pass her in the aisle, she's singing it to her daughter. Mm, that's great. And I'm thinking, like, you know what? This woman's not old, old enough to have been <laughs> born really when this record came out. So that was quite, that was quite cool. And that's I think wild. the last the time I heard it before that, I was uh, I, I went and did a battlefield tour with uh, a, uh, a mate of mine for his fiftieth, and we went to the, the battlefields of. Uh, Northern France and Belgium, and we were in a, uh, a museum surrounded by all these artifacts from the First World War. And it ca- they were playing the local radio station, a local Belgian radio station, and it came on. And that was that's it, mm. you know it's it's hearing it in surreal yeah. environments. But I, I guess that and okay, like I play it live now. It's I, I'd never played any live songs, any Frankie stuff for years. One yeah. because basically. Two tribes on an acoustic guitar ain't, ain't bringing the house down, John. Right. Right. As much as I can try and throw a few shapes, it ain't bringing right. the house down. That's well, true. If, if, I do the power of, if I do the power of love, I get to have my Robbie Williams Angels minute where yeah. I stop singing and everyone everyone sings it and everyone loves it. That's wild. But it's, uh, yeah, good fun. Okay. But I thought, if, if you put a gun to my head, I'd probably have to say that one. Okay. Because it's... Okay. Because it's it's uh, it's still here. That's interesting because as big a song as that was over there, that didn't make a dent over here in the States. You know, a casual no. Frankie fan wouldn't even know that song. Isn't that crazy? No. Yeah. The rest of the world, no, it's this but, huge anthem. Well, it's uh, America's a weird place, isn't it? You know, yeah, it's, it uh, my, my, fond, my fondest memories, and I don't know whether it comes across in the book, but uh, going to the States for the first time to do that club tour was was just amazing to be, you know, we, we'd had success uh, and people knew who we were in our home country. And we thought, 
everybody's going to be gunning for us to be rubbish mm. live. So we've got to go. We've got to go away on tour. We've got to go somewhere where nobody knows us. And we took our own production into like these little clubs, which was mm. ridiculous. No, no, we, we were, I think what was the one of the places we played St. Andrews Hall in Detroit. Oh, and uh, what was there? Was, there was another place uh, just opposite Fenway Park. I think it was called the Metro okay. in Boston, and the uh-huh. ceiling was so low. The guy, <laughs> the guy could focus the lights from the stage just by reaching up to them. No, so when we come on stage, it was like it was like being under the grill. Yeah, you know these were all like yeah, were the old park, the old park cans. But such an amazing time, and you know, Americans get a lot, a, a lot of, a lot of bad press. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know how many percentages of them haven't got a passport and they don't come here, and the ones that we, and I, and I, I think Americans could teach a, a lot of people for the start about customer service, no, that's unreal, true. and yeah. just friendly people wherever mm-hmm. you go and yeah. so well looked after I mean you you would you would do a gig and a couple of people would come backstage and um, we, we, used to, we used to do this thing where you'd turn up at a hotel and this was in the days when they used to have matchbooks on reception mm. for the for the smokers because uh-huh. smoking becomes so unfashionable sure. so you would be if you went out anywhere after the gig you would have a matchbook with a hundred dollar bill folded in it, hmm. and wherever you went, you were never going to be a hundred dollar cab ride away from where the matchbook lives. Right, you know what right, I mean? right. So you go, true. you go to places like oh, it's just trying to think for like an ex- Cleveland, and you'd meet a couple of students, and they'd go like, oh, "Do you want to come back to our dorm and get high?" Yeah, yeah. Where's that? Oh, it's about twenty. It's about twenty miles away. Yeah, great. Let's have that. <laughs> yeah, we'll just go and get the car. And like me and Mark compared to go back with these, there'd be about seven of us in the back of the car. Crazy. And end up going back to some like uh, halls of residence at a university. Taking (laughs) mushrooms. That's crazy. That is crazy. That's just the American way. That that happens a lot, you know, just just hanging out with people. And it was the... um, It was the great... It was the greatest thing because it was something that we could never do once we came back to this country to play because it was all limos and straight out the mm-hmm. arena as soon as the gig finished, you know. Right. Um, towards the end. That's great. But, and, 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 and of course, then you, you've got people who want to hang out with you just because of, you know, we, we, we weren't as accessible as we were when we were in the States. Mm-hmm. And of course, going to America for the first time is such an amazing place, you know, and vast. And, yeah. And, I, 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 one day I'm going to go back and I'm going to do a road trip oh. of all of, all of these places that we played. I'm you have to start start in Chicago or somewhere and go right do right down the bottom and back up the other side and see these places that yeah. I've visited that I've never seen. You That's know, amazing. That would be so I, fun. I, I you should. I, made, I think I made a point in the book about like. It was only when I was coming to read it. We were in, we were in New Orleans for I think four days, and you know this is New Orleans, man. Right, right. This is like this is like the home of music. I know to a lot did, of people. You did know, you do anything fun? Uh, 
Yeah, but with my memories in New Orleans, I saw a paddle steamer from my hotel window <laughs> going up no. the Mississippi, oh, wow. and I drank pink hurricanes in <laughs> Pat O'Brien's on Bourbon Street. Four days, and that's all I've got. Oh, that's, no. It's like, Nash, what, what, what are you doing, man? That's all I've got. Put me bags on the bed, saw the paddle steamer, went out and got drunk. Oh, Did a that's gig, crazy. Got drunk again, got hammered. Yeah, nice yeah. knowing you in New Orleans. Where's next? Oh, you so, got to go back. Take the wife. Just take carve out like a no, month. I've got to, I, I want to go. To, I want to go back in. I want to go back there and uh, stalk Ricky Lee Jones. Ricky yes. Lee Jones is my god. Is she really? Uh, yeah. Oh, ah. I went to see. I've I've, I've seen her uh, half a dozen times. Most recently, about three or four weeks ago. Ah. Just Premier League. Just stunning. She's your just favorite. Stunning. Interesting. Yeah, dude, uh, her her singing and her phrasing are just unreal. Wow. I've I've got I've got a tune. I want it. I'd love to do a duet with her, but wow. uh, we'll see. Yeah, I've, it's getting it to. Yeah. Okay. Good luck. I think it's a good tune. Well, so let's. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, well, yeah. I yeah. Hopefully. Good luck with all of that. Well, why not? You're the guy from Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Does she have too many better things to do than sing on a song with you? I don't know. You know. She seems like a really nice maybe person. So, maybe so. Hopefully. Yeah. Um, well, like, well, well, John, if you don't ask, you don't get it. That's very true. Very true. Um, okay. So let's go into kind of your post-Frankie career. You had mentioned in the book that one of the best decisions you ever made was investing in a, uh, a studio that um, I assume you still run to this day. And I think you also do some electrician work. I don't know if that's still a primary gig for you. You've got the music, but I don't know if that's enough to pay the bills. You were so open. And that was, I thought, the best part of your book was the post-Frankie stuff about paying your bills and how in debt you were and how you make a living and having to be scrappy and just find a way. I loved that part. So in this, today, what do you do to kind of make a living? How do you, What's your daily routine? Um, well, tomorrow I'll be going up to my studio to record uh, a Liverpool football club podcast, which oh. is something I've been doing. Uh, I'm a big Liverpool fan, and this podcast I've been going for a few years. So, so you do a podcast uh, too on Liverpool football? Yeah, we're, it's called... That's uh, great. Yeah, for any Liverpool fans who are listening, it's on iTunes. It's called Pass and Move. Okay. Uh, free downloads. We had we've had some great we had some great guests on. Um, Good. But I found out last week. Uh, sadly, my days in the studio are numbered because, like every other building in this capital city, uh, the cranes of greed are moving in, and my wow. studio has had planning permission put on it for it to be knocked down and turned into two offices and two flats. Wow. So. I'm currently in the process of selling guitars and bits of studio gear because storage is so expensive. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I don't know how long it's going to be before I can set another studio. Um, I'm planning to move back to Liverpool uh, in the next eighteen months, so maybe start oh. a studio there. But of course, you know the way the technology has changed now. I, I recorded my last album on a Mac. A, a Mac laptop with a, an eight-channel mixing desk and one microphone, mm. and you don't need the no. twenty-four-channel desks anymore. You know everything's no. in the box, so it's kind of a yeah. It, it, it's it's quite sad. I think what I'm going to do when I, when I've emptied the studio, I think I'm going to have like four Saturday nights of gigs there, 
mm. and in, and maybe just send invitations to people who followed me. Oh yeah. Like throughout the last twenty years, and say, come on, let's we're gonna have a, we're gonna have a few beers in the studio, and we're gonna have yeah. a couple of gigs. So come over and have a night. And, oh, uh, wow. Yeah, it was very. It was. Very, I wrote an impassioned plea to Barnet Council, who are a bunch of fucking scumbags. Oh boy. Uh, about about um, my studio, and you know, like this was. It was a twenty grand investment. Blah blah blah. I've had musicians from all over the world come here. Yeah. They've all spent money in bar. Blah blah blah. And you know what I got back? A two line email. Thank oh. you for your interesting. Your interesting email. With all you've done for High Barnet, however, the consultation process is over. Uh, Just fucking being counters who oh want money. No. Yeah. But you know, it, it served it served me well. I've recorded four four solo albums there. I'm sick of news of Arabs and Jews kicking off. Yeah. I recorded the audio version of my book there, which was yeah. the most hellish. hellish that was thing I've ever why. Seen. Yeah. Why? Because you, if you take the if you take the microphone out of the equation, John, you're sitting in a room talking to yourself. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh, and the uh, uh, it was um, two and two and you know times when I'd I'd, uh, I'd started and spoken. For about, I'd say it would to do a twenty-minute chapter. Uh-huh. It would take um, about an hour, and then about two hours to edit, edit it, and make. Because it was then I realised, oh yeah, you know, spoken word does have a rhythm, mm. and you can't just have fucking pieces of silence in between it. Yeah. You have to have sound of the mic being open. But I'll se- I'll send you one. And uh, okay, God, it was the, it was it, it's it's like teach yourself scouse. <laughs> when I first started, I was very conscious that people from all over the world would be buying this. And I, and I, I started off, and I was quite BBC mm-hmm. in the way I was talking. Right. And then by the, by the time I got to the end of it, I was wasting towards the light of this, the end of this tunnel going, and anyway, and this and this. And this. Uh-huh. So, it's, yeah, it's like I, I say it's uh, teach yourself scouts. I believe it. Oh, that's great. I believe it. So what? So what are you gonna do? I mean, if so, if the if the studio that's been your you know your lifeblood and your your how you make a living, what what's next? Are you gonna go back to being an electrician? Could you do music full time? No, I've, I've, you know, 
when it, I, I don't do a lot of electric. The only people I do electrical work for these days are people who I did it for 20 years ago, who are all like old days and that. And and you know they get they're great they're great sources of material as well. Like I've yeah. got I've got a couple of songs out of a couple of my customers that they don't know about. But do you know what? It pays more than the music does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's 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 and it's because because I've never I've never had to do it five days a week for the last twenty years. I still enjoy it and I still take a lot of pride in my work and yeah. doing a very good job. So uh, okay. It's 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 not it's not difficult. Okay. I spend okay. a lot of time I spend a lot of time at home looking after uh, my missus has got a good job, so she goes good. out work and then I make I make sure there's some uh, there's something on, there's something hot on the table when got she it. comes in. And got I don't it. mean I don't mean me. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, good. Okay. I uh, I got to put in a plug cuz we 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 always play little snippets of the songs that we talk about on here to give the listener some context. Uh I love now um when at the end, by the end of your book, you had put out 3 albums and you've since put out a fourth and I love the track Salt in Our Veins. I love this town. Let me show you Some old faces will show you the places I've been Where we all had dreams Of better days like these My sisters and brothers were not like the others Cause we conquered the oceans We were pulled from the river by Or the empire that gave us salt in our veins. Well, is red and blue, but there were not two. Green bus southbound. Your solo stuff is so, you know, it's it's softer and it's prettier and it's uh it's sweet and it's folky and that kind of thing. It's so different than the band you came from. Is this the music that's, you know, that's in your veins? Do you ever think about just cutting loose and rocking out like Steve Jones did from the pistols, your hero? Well, do you know what? I was thinking, the, uh, the last album I did was, uh, it, to, to all intents and purposes, uh, a concept album. Uh-huh. Now, so two questions. Number one, did you ever meet Bowie? Because it seems like you should have, and I know that he was your first big love. Did you ever meet him or cross paths? Uh, we went to a hotel in Birmingham after we'd played at Birmingham Odeon, and he had played at the NEC in Birmingham, and he never came down. Oh, no. So, no, I never, oh, I never man. met him. But I'm kind, of, I'm kind of glad, really. Yeah. I'm kind of glad because he was such a massive influence on my life and many other people. It was... Um, yeah. I don't know. It, okay. Could he have lived up to it? I, I've got a great, great story actually. A mate of mine Ooh. Uh, met Bowie when when they did the anniversary concerts at uh, Hammersmith Odeon, and uh, I think just John Giddens was was the promoter, and he dragged my mate aside and he said, "Do you want to meet Dave?" And my mate said, 
don't fuck with me. No. He said, <laughs> he said, no, do you want to meet Dave? And he went, don't fuck with me, John. Don't mess me around. And he said, come here. And he said, you've gone in this, this door, the side, like the side of the upstairs bar. And he said, I've gone in, opened the door. And as I closed the door behind me, Bowie's sitting on a couch. And he said, uh, John Giddens walks, takes me up to Bowie. And he says, uh, David, this is my, uh, this is my friend, Steve. And he said, Steve said, I've just shook his hand and I'm shaking his hand for 30 seconds and I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> I'm a fucking, I'm a journalist, I'm a journalist, I've got nothing, man, I've got right. fucking nothing, I've got nothing. <laughs> so he says, he just says to Bowie, I've got nothing. And Bowie says to him, go and get a drink and if when you come back, if you've still got nothing, you can fuck off. <laughs> so he, Steve goes over to the bed, to the bar. He says, I poured myself like a massive jack and I'm going, it's fucking Bowie, it's Bowie, it's Bowie. What the fuck am I going to ask him? What do I... right. So he, he next to Jack, goes back to Bowie and goes, I've got nothing. No. And he goes, well, fuck off then. No. <laughs> oh, that's great. No way. So that made, me, that made me feel a little bit better about not meeting him. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'd have been the same. I'd have no. just been going like, I would die. He's my number one too. I would. You know, uh, the day, the day he died, there's um, I'm in a Facebook group called the Tim White Jukebox, Mm. and uh, it's it's it was run by uh, it's basically a load of people from Liverpool who all used to go to these certain clubs, like the New Romantic clubs and all that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got up. In the morning, my lad said to me, Bowie's dead. And I went, you're kidding? He said, no, he said, it's on there. It was on Twitter. So I messaged my mate. And what we used to do on Friday afternoons, we'd open up the Tim White jukebox and people would uh, request songs that we used to hear back in these clubs back in the day. And we'd just, put, we'd just play them. So I said, I, I contacted Peter and I said, do you want to be... Um, do you want to open the jukebox? And he said, I'm not up to it. He said, it's, I'm absolutely gutted. And I said, I'll do it then. So I opened up the jukebox and I hadn't cried yeah. about the death of David Bowie until I started reading people's memories oh. and, and the songs they were, they were requesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, like just real bizarre things like memories of a free festival. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, I was on a coach going to see Bowie at Bingley Hall. And, you know, I never even, I've never even seen Bowie play live. And I'm, you know, I had the opportunities later, you know, when the glass spider thing. And Wait, all that. you never saw you know, Bowie see play live? No, never seen him. Never oh seen him play no live. way! I saw him twice, but much later, it, like in the heathen period. Yeah. Okay. Which is, you know, what that's the kind of thing. It was like, yeah. Would it would it ever would it ever I know. beat or ever even match watching the videos of, right. of uh, Ziggy Stardust or Hammersmith? Yeah. And it's like, he's, I hold him in such high esteem as a songwriter. And especially back then, you know, everything from from Hunky Dory mm-hmm. up, up to Let's Dance, yeah. I'd say, was, 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 was just epic. There wasn't a bad record amongst no. them. And that's some, that's some canon of work, isn't it? Yeah, I know. I know. Do you have a favorite Bowie album? Which one is it? It'd have to be Spiders. Yeah, okay. Uh, it'd, it'd be Spiders, uh, Spiders, Hunky Dory, or Aladdin Sane. Mm, the first ones. The changes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but Ziggy okay. Stardust was the first album I ever owned. That was my own album. Right. And uh, no, it's just amazing. It it's is. Just, <laughs> in fact, 
fantastic record from yeah. beginning to end. There isn't there isn't a piece of shit on it. It's no. just Mick Ronson as well, you know, just yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. And Life on Mars, Life on Mars was the thing that uh, that got me. Really? I've been, yeah, nine years old and seeing the video on top of the pops. Oh, wow. It was quite funny. We were talking about, I bumped into uh, Paul Rutherford. I knew he was in the country, <laughs> but the first day of the Bowie exhibition at the VNA. He was there? And I, I hadn't seen him. I hadn't seen him for about two years, and I'm walking through, and I see Paul walking towards me, and I went, you know what I mean? He went, oh, nah, yeah, yeah. I'm, oh, I'm in bits, mate. The clothes. The clothes. Just look at the clothes. <laughs> he was so buzzing on it, you know. Oh, wow. But, uh, That's great. Yeah, really cool. Well, uh, yeah, well awesome. I'll, I'll get to see him in the next life. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully we all will again. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. I've been a fan of the band. I loved your book. Uh, I love your solo material. Uh, I just wanted to kind of tell your story to my listeners if possible. So I'm so grateful you gave me some time. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. Uh, John, absolute pleasure, mate. Absolute pleasure. And I'll send you the, I'll send you the, um, an audio book and you can teach yourself scouts. Oh. It, 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 it's 25, 25%. 25% more content than the written one. Oh, really? And it, 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 it's kind of like it's the draft. So it's what I submitted okay. to them before the edit. Oh, fascinating. So there's a few things in it. Yeah. Okay. Because, yeah, uh, I bought it for my Kindle. and I, So I read it, like, on my phone, you know, over yeah. a couple of weeks. Okay, cool. No, this, 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 uh, the, the audio book is a beautiful... It's a fl it comes on a two gigabyte flash drive. Okay. That's in the shape of a T-shirt that says <laughs> Nasha says relax on the front, and it awesome. comes in a very smart presentation tin. Okay. So I uh, you email me your address, brother, and I, I will get one off in the post. Oh, yeah. I love it! I love it! Thank you so much. There you have it, Brian Nash. Wasn't he great? I love people like that that just tell it like it is. They're honest. They're polite about it. They don't pull any punches. They, uh, they're good folks. They tell it like it is. Those are my favorite kinds of guests. So thank you so much, Brian. I loved that. We're going to close it out here with one of my favorite songs. I, as I said in here, I actually prefer the Liverpool album to the Welcome to the Pleasure Dome album. And uh, this is one of my favorite tracks on that album. It's called Kill the Pain. So, so good. So I hope you guys enjoy this. And check out their stuff. Now, and don't forget Nasher. Go out, look at some of his uh, solo stuff. If you liked what you heard in here, it's a lot like that. He's put out, I believe, four albums. And by all means, Nasher Says Relax. Uh, $3.19, I think, on Kindle. No reason not to check that out. The band part of the book is pretty good. The post-band part of the book is fascinating. One of the best sort of honest exposés of post-band life that you'll ever hear. We, he talks about the band's reunited situation that they were in about 15 years ago. He talks about not participating in a Trevor Horn tribute concert and why. All kinds of stuff that we didn't even have time to get into in here. All the details. So check it out. There's a lot to be had if you like Brian Nash. Now we're in week four of our five-week series on British bands that were big in the 80s that everyone kind of knew. We got one band left. Next week's guest was a founding member of a band that was pretty big in the States. They had two number one hits in their first three albums, but then he was asked to leave. 
They put out their fourth album, and it becomes one of the biggest selling albums in UK chart history. And the rest of the world, frankly, it didn't do much in the States, but it was gigantic everywhere else. And he barely missed it. So that's what we're going to talk about next week. It's a really interesting one. I hope you guys like it. Uh, huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man. Thank you, buddy. I love that we get to do this together. You guys know the drill. Find us on Facebook. Like our page. Send us a message. Send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at the Hustle Pod. I want to thank everyone who's been sending us some Facebook reviews lately. I'll read those in another episode. Um, please, if you don't mind, send us some iTunes reviews as well. Uh, I think those go into you know getting us on the charts, which gets us seen, which gets more listeners. Blah blah blah. It's a circular, if you don't, if you will. So anyway, that's how that works. Thanks everybody. We love you. We'll talk to you later.